Oh. Did you sound before? <laughs> I had sound before. The ill and their caregivers. I like to show the back too because it's so beautiful. Hello, my name is Tony Bernhard, and this is the book I wrote. It's called How to Be Sick, A Buddhist-Inspired Guide for the Chronically Ill and Their Caregivers. I like to show the back, too, because it's so beautiful. I wish I could be there in person, but I'll be talking more about desire later. Uh, I'm The fact that I'm even able to be videoed like this is an improvement over how I was when I wrote the book. I'm here by grace of a combination of Eastern and Western medicines, I call it my cocktail, that have made me more functional during the day, even if always not less sick. And then there's that special pre-prepared -pre ingredient, adrenaline, Adrenaline is what I use to get me through when I have to do something, like wait for a doctor, or when I really want to do something and I think I can pull it off, and that's what I'm doing now. Before I got sick, I was a teacher. I would sometimes lecture 80, 90 students at a time, and so like a good teacher, I've prepared for class, Forgive me if I'm too tied to my notes, but it's been many years since I've spoken to a group of people, even a group remote. You might be looking at me and thinking, she doesn't look sick. She looks as good as the rest of us. And yes, that's one of the difficulties that the chronically ill face. Many of us don't look sick. There are 90 million people in the U.S. alone who suffer from some kind of chronic illness or condition, and that is a figure applying only to physical suffering. And so looking out at, if I could look out at this group and see you, I would know that I'm looking at some people who are struggling with chronic illness or with a chronic condition. And I know that we have a lot in common. I'm gonna start by telling you how I got sick and by addressing just what in the world might be wrong with me. And then I'll say a bit about what it's like to live in what I call the parallel universe of the chronically ill. And then I'll talk about how I came to write the book and a bit about what's in it and then I'm going to read two excerpts. The story of this unexpected turn in my life begins in the early summer of 2001, when I had the next, oh, 15 or 20 years mapped out. I was happily back in the classroom at UC Davis's School of Law after serving six years as its Dean of Students. I was very happy, in fact, because I was finally able to teach the classes that I loved teaching. I planned to take frequent trips to Los Angeles. I live in Davis, so uh, six hours away, to visit my newborn granddaughter, who's now about to turn 10. My husband, whose name is also Tony, 
My husband and I would try to get to this little Molokai hideaway that we had discovered to rent and had gone to frequently. I'd attend Buddhist meditation retreats as I had been doing for 10 years. And I continued to be uh, what is known in California as a CASA, a court-appointed special advocate for a young boy in Child Protective Services who, whom I'd grown to love dearly. And then suddenly, everything changed. And that's chapter one of the book. Chapter one, Getting Sick, A Romantic Trip to Paris. Tony and I went to Paris and I got sick with what the doctors initially diagnosed as an acute viral infection but I never recovered. So what is wrong with me? I, I preferred to talk about the book, but I've learned from several radio interviews I've done that this is understandably what people want to know. What's wrong with you? Many years ago, uh, I used to have terrible back trouble. And I remember an orthopedist looked me straight in the eyes and said, backs are at the limit of our medical knowledge. Well, there you have it. What's wrong with me really is at the limit of our current medical knowledge. Some people call it, some doctors call it chronic fatigue syndrome. But experts in this field, and I've seen or consulted with almost all of them, no longer think chronic fatigue syndrome is one illness. They've begun to isolate four or five discrete illnesses or subsets. So when you say a person has chronic fatigue syndrome, it doesn't mean you know what's wrong with them. It's a mysterious illness, and even the CDC has said that it can be more debilitating than cancer and than AIDS. But unlike those two illnesses, the research money isn't there for CFS. There's more money spent each year on hay fever research than there is on CFS. And this is partly due to the ridiculous name that the CDC settled on back in the 1980s, I think, rejecting other names such as post-viral syndrome. People with a CFS diagnosis aren't just fatigued. They're sick. Everyone, sick or healthy, is fatigued at times. But except for the fever, just imagine how you feel when you have the flu. The aching body, the dizziness, the cognitive struggles, the need to collapse onto the bed every few hours. Well, that's, that's me. That's how I feel all the time. So do we have any clues? Well, I mentioned those four to five discrete subsets of CFS. At some future date, those subsets will be given names and the phrase chronic fatigue syndrome will become obsolete. An expert at Harvard puts me under one subset, expert at Stanford under another, and there's now even a third possibility. So first, Harvard. 
Well, lucky me, Dr. Anthony L. Komarov, the Simcox Clifford Higby Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and the former director of Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, is none other than Tony Komarov, a kid I grew up with. <laughs> but after getting sick, I didn't try to contact him for five years. It was February of 2006. I saw the name Dr. Anthony Komarov on every major chronic fatigue syndrome article, but I couldn't believe that this kind of a mess-off kid grew up to be such a distinguished doctor. Then I saw a picture of him, and I added about 50 years to the face of my Tony Komarov, and I knew immediately that's who it was. He has devoted his career to CFS research and has been very giving of his time to me given how incredibly busy and in demand he is and the fact that, and he wouldn't mind my saying this, we didn't much like each other as kids. <laughs> so what does he say? Well, he says one strong possibility is that I have what's called chronic immune system activation a condition that keeps the body in a perpetual state of what's known in medicine as the sickness response. It's that yucky feeling that all of you have when you're sick, and it's a good sign because it's the side effects of your body fighting off either a viral or a bacterial infection. There's an infectious disease doctor at the UC Davis Med Center who concurs with this possibility. And the way he put it to my husband and me is that it's as if my immune system is stuck in the on position. In other words, it went on like a good immune system to fight the virus in Paris, but then it didn't return to normal. And if this is what's going on with me, I need, I guess I could say I need an effect uh, to be able to push a reset button. We just don't know how. How about uh, Stanford? Well, for two years I was under the care of an infectious disease doctor who thought that the cause of my continued sickness was a reactivation of one or more childhood viruses. In, just in the way that chicken pox can come back as shingles. In my case, based on my blood work, the virus is childhood roseola, which is known in the adult population as HHV6 and also possibly Epstein-Barr virus, the cause of mononucleosis. These are viruses that lay dormant in healthy adults, but his thinking is that the acute virus I got in Paris triggered their reactivation, which has left my body in a constant low-grade war against them, again, in a state of sickness response. And now there's a third possibility. Just in the past 12 months, evidence from two published papers, the first in Science Journal and the second, a study done by the FDA, the NIH, and Harvard Medical School, points to a connection between chronic fatigue syndrome and one or more leukemia-related retroviruses. The first paper 
found what's known as the XM retrovirus in 67% of CFS patients it studied. And the second just published paper found a related retrovirus in 87% of CFS patients as compared to 7% in healthy control groups. 87%. Uh, and these are leukemia-related viruses, not comforting, especially to me, whose father died of leukemia. Thank goodness I was negative in preliminary tests for the XM virus, but we don't know about the, the viruses that were the subject of the second study. So we're back to where we started. What's wrong with me? It's really at the limit of our current medical knowledge. So what is life like in the chronic illness lane? As the months went by and I didn't recover, I felt as if I'd entered a parallel universe that I didn't know existed. And one reason this universe is largely invisible is that many people with chronic illnesses and conditions, even those that are life-threatening, simply don't look sick. I should qualify that. The people who are with us all the time know those subtle differences in our demeanor when our symptoms intensify. My husband can always tell when it's time to whisk me away if I'm talking to someone. He sees that. But to other people, I look fine. And even those whose conditions are not invisible inhabit this parallel world. I can think back to countless students who I met over the years, especially when I was in the dean's office, who were visibly sick or visibly disabled. I did everything I could to help them, but I didn't fully appreciate the tough and relentless challenges they face every day, not until it happened to me. So what are these, some of the experiences we share in this parallel universe? I'm pretty well versed because I've been hanging out online for about nine years with other people who are chronically ill, not just those with chronic fatigue syndrome, but those with chronic illness. For one thing, we often feel that it's our own fault that we got sick, that it's some personal failing on our part. We live in a culture that worships at the altar of wellness. It's okay to get sick, but then you're supposed to get better. It's what people expect of you. It's what I expected of myself. Every night when I would go to bed, I would expect to wake up feeling like my old self, even though for weeks and then months and then years, it just hadn't been the case. Many of us feel as if we've left let our family and friends down. I used to sob to my husband that I'd ruined his life, again, as if it were my fault. Some of us have had to adjust to a life of relative social isolation as many of our friends slowly drifted away. 
We also get frustrated by the lack of understanding in the general public and often the medical community about the nature of chronic illnesses and conditions. After I was interviewed on a local NPR show out of Sacramento, I got an email from a listener telling me that he didn't want his tax dollars going to support an amotivational slacker. I just like the phrase, amotivational slacker. <laughs> and people with chronic pain conditions sometimes get labeled at the ER as drug seekers and are denied much needed relief, much needed relief that they could get from pain medication if they happen to show up at a time when their regular doctor is not available to vouch for their illness or condition. We grow weary of the inordinate amount of time we must spend in the healthcare system. Even with its many well-intentioned and compassionate inhabitants, it's still a club we never asked to join, peopled by physicians and physicians' assistants and nurses and receptionists and medical students and then the lab technicians and the automated voices at the end of the phone and all the other people in the waiting room who share the need to be in, in this club. Oh, and don't forget to break doctors down into residents and attending physicians because you can wait an hour or more to see the resident and then have to wait another hour or more to see the attending. At least between the time that you see the resident and the time that the attending comes in the room, uh, comes to see you, you're in an exam room where I've become quite adept at turning this one-third size bed into something like you'd see at Club Med or something. Um, I think that, I was thinking this over, and I believe that ENT, ear, nose, and throat, and the infectious disease, um, an infectious disease at UC Davis and infectious disease at Stanford are in a three-way tie for the record. Three hours of waiting before the attending came in to see us. And I mention this because um, it, it's just not, it's not uncommon for people who are chronically ill to feel so much worse for days after the very undertaking that we'd hoped was going to make us feel better or improved. Finally, many of us share the dilemma of how to present to the world. Should I have spruced myself up? Well, I did a little bit. Spruced myself up and just to look, try to look my very best today. I could have put on makeup and lipstick and, and then I'd risk thinking, having people say, well, she can't possibly have written a book called How to Be Sick. Or should I have let my clothes and demeanor reflect how I feel? And then risk feeling that I'm not doing enough to lift my spirits. This is a dilemma that others have mentioned 
on the internet. It's very common. Caretakers are faced with their own set of stressors. I'm sure that if I were looking out at you in person, I'd be looking at some caretakers out there. You know the frustration of not being able to make your loved one better, of being suddenly thrown into the role of patient advocate in the medical system, of having to take over most of the household tasks, of seeing your loved one at his or her worst. What you see now is not what my husband is going to see later in the day as a result of my having done this. That's for his eyes alone. Although my, my children and their spouses have seen me at my worst once in a while. Mostly I try to hide it from them. And then for caregivers, there's the sudden isolation as the result of losing your spouse or partner or loved one out in the world. The last has been very hard on my husband. Those of you with partners, think of that juicy party post-mortem in the car on the way home where you get to debrief each other. And, you know, it's... Oh, did you see how much he drank? Did you see? I, could, I, I couldn't get a word in edgewise how fast she talked. Or it might be, what a lovely couple they were. Why don't we see if we can have them over for dinner? Well, we've lost that. For the most part, when my husband goes out, he goes out alone. And when he goes back east or travels down to Phoenix where we have old friends, he goes alone. It's hard, I can tell. You know, being chronically ill and being a caregiver can both feel like full-time jobs, full-time jobs that we didn't train for and we weren't prepared for. Writing this book has helped me tremendously because it's taught me that no matter how sick I feel and how difficult my circumstances may be with the right tools and guidance, I can find a measure of peace and even joy in this hand I've been dealt. I like to say that learning to live gracefully and purposefully with chronic illness is an acquired skill. Actually, learning to live that way, even when you're healthy, is an acquired skill. So um, let me say a few words about how the writing of the book came about and what's in it. And then I'll read two excerpts. Before I got sick, I'd been a practicing Buddhist for 10 years. In 1996, I attended one of the last retreats led by the late Ayakema. Some of you may know of her. She was a Buddhist nun whose Jewish parents had escaped Nazi Germany, sending their young daughter to live in England. Her life story could, could be the, the subject of another talk. At this but at this retreat, she told us several times, thoughts arise, but for the most part are arbitrary and not reliable. 
She liked to say in her stern German tone, most of them are just rubbish, but we believe them anyway. I took her words to heart. You, you didn't easily ignore Ayakema's pronouncements. And before getting sick, I had become quite adept at watching thoughts arise and pass without believing them. But put me in the sick bed all day, and suddenly my thoughts seemed anything but rubbish, and I believed every one of them. I've ruined Tony's life, my fault for getting sick, I've let my family down, my granddaughter won't grow to love me because she can't see me very often. Despite all those years of Buddhist training before I got sick, I fell into alternating states of denial, anger, self-blame, and occasionally despair. But slowly and surely, I began to find my way back to the Buddha's teachings and the many practices I'd learned in those years before I got sick. Just saying that brings tears to my eyes. Um, at first, I took up these practices just to cope, a kind of desperate, whatever gets you through the night feeling. But after some months, I began to use them to cultivate equanimity and even joy. Some months after that process, one day I reached for my laptop. I actually call it my bed top. And I opened a new document, and I wrote how to be sick. Yes, the title came first. I think that's unusual in a book, but the title came first. And I stared at the screen and thought, boy, what a great idea to write a book to help others, use the Buddhist teachings. Too bad I'm too sick to write it. I hit save, and I closed the document. But obviously, I did write it, lying on my bed, laptop on my stomach, notes strewn about the blanket, my printer within arm's reach, with the exception of a book by Byron Katie, the only sources I used in this book were notes I'd taken from books that I read before I got sick, notes I'd taken uh, from teachers' talks at retreats, and from my memory. Some days I'd get so involved in a chapter that I'd work too hard and then I wouldn't be able to work for days or weeks. And there were also periods where I was just too sick and it would be left untouched for months. And there were times when I thought I would never get it finished and that I would just toss it. But I kept going and managed to get it done. <laughs> I think of the Buddha the way the, Dalai, the way the Dalai Lama does, as a great psychologist. The Buddha understood that everyone's life has its mixture of joy and suffering. He focused on suffering because it's a truth about life that we tend to ignore or turn away from 
as many of you know, it comes from the Pali word dukkha, which really means dissatisfaction with the circumstances of our life. In the first noble truth, the Buddha simply stated that despite our best efforts to avoid it, everyone has their share of dukkha, both physical and mental, meaning we're all dissatisfied in some way with our life. To quote the latest Buddhist, the latest celebrity Buddhist, you can't always get what you want. Right, I guess I should say want. For one thing, we're in bodies, and bodies get injured and sick and old, despite the barrage of advertising claims to the contrary. This dissatisfaction, this dukkha, for me, has included this illness. For you, it could be frustration on the job, problems in a relationship, can't find your car keys, the dog barking next door. Everybody experiences dukkha. We're all dissatisfied with some of the circumstances of our life, unless we're enlightened, of course. And that is my own personal definition of enlightenment, not being dissatisfied in any way with the circumstances of my life. Just imagine for a moment not being set dissatisfied in any way with how your life is going. Just opening your heart and mind to the unpleasant stuff, in addition to the pleasant stuff, giving up all longing for your life to be other than it is. Just for a moment, drop all that desire. What a relief, eh? Of course, those wants and don't wants, which is the term I, the phrase I use for desire or craving, they're going to almost pop immediately back into your mind. They have into mine, but it's a taste of freedom. And it's a taste for me that lingers and inspires me to keep working at it. And that takes me to the book. Because all the practices in the book, whether Buddhist or not, are designed to help us not make our suffering, this dissatisfaction, worse by craving for things we have no control over to be different. In fact, that's the Buddha's second noble truth, that the origin of dukkha is this constant craving for our life to be other than it is. Sometimes instead of the word suffering, the word anguish is used because it's associated with the mind, not the body. And this is an important distinction that the Buddha made when he said in the third noble truth that we could reach the end of suffering, he meant suffering in the mind. The Buddha himself suffered from great bodily pains at, time, at times, but he showed us that we need not add mental suffering, or think of it now as mental anguish, to that bodily suffering. The bottom line is we have the life we've got with its unique configuration of joy and suffering. We can't always get rid of bodily suffering, the aches, the pains, and the like. 
but we need not add mental suffering. That's the heart of the book, learning to work with painful mental states, to loosen the tight-fisted grip, that's how I think of them, as having a grip on me. And by painful mental states, I'm referring first to stressful thoughts, and second, to painful emotions. Sometimes people call them negative emotions, but I don't like that word because I don't like the judgment implied. So first, stressful thoughts. The book contains several practices, some Buddhist, some not, that specifically help us question the validity of these thoughts, even though we may think their truthfulness is set in stone. And you don't have to be sick to benefit from this practice, that's for sure. Here I'm referring to the elaborate stories we spin about our lives and our future that have little or no basis in reality. For me, I'll never do anything useful again. No one but Tony cares that I'm sick. Well. I know you've all got plenty of stories that you spin about your own life and then convince yourself that they're true. I've been helped tremendously here by Byron Katie's simple technique for questioning the validity of our stressful thoughts. Because as Ayakema said, most of them really are rubbish. There's a chapter in the book devoted to her work and she's not Buddhist by the way. I've also been helped by a couple of Zen practices that keep me questioning the truthfulness of my assumptions. Am I sure, I'm always asking myself, thanks to Thich Nhat Hanh, am I sure the doctor I saw doesn't care about me? Maybe he's terribly overbooked today. Am I sure my friend has lost interest in me? Maybe she has problems of her own. Keeping what Korean Zen master Sung Son called a don't know mind can be very liberating. As for painful emotions, the book contains many practices to help loosen their grip. Since emotions manifest in the body, this can even help alleviate our physical symptoms. One way to loosen their grip is to bring them into awareness. Buddhists call this mindfulness practice. Then we can more clearly see these emotions for what they are, impermanent for one thing, thank goodness, and not inherently a fixed part of who we are. I'm not just anger, I'm not just frustration. These emotions arise and pass, just like all phenomenon in the world. Another way to loosen their grip is to consciously cultivate what Buddhists call the sublime mental states, such as loving kindness and compassion, both for ourselves first, and also to cultivate equanimity. I want to share with you part of an email I received from a woman who read the book and wrote to me about one of the simple compassion practices in it simply repeating a phrase to yourself like, my sweet body working so hard to support me. My sweet body working so hard to support me. Here's what she said. 
I realized that I still hadn't forgiven myself for getting ill and how much I hated my body for failing me. You made me see that it's not failing me. It's working as hard as it can to save me and make things all right. It's the biggest relief I've felt in years. It feels so, so good to see this. So compassion, reaching out with kindness to your own suffering. As for equanimity, some Buddhist scholars even equate it with enlightenment, saying if we can be calmly present with both our pleasant and unpleasant experiences, riding the waves of life's ups and downs without the constant craving for things to be other than they are, we'll know complete peace. And as the Thai Buddhist monk Achan Shah likes to say, our troubles with the world will have come to an end. On this score, I'm a work in progress. <laughs> the Buddha was a practical-minded guy. He was talking about how we live day to day. As Ayakema liked to say, Buddhism is nothing more than, adult, than an adult education class. Okay, so now for some excerpts. I'm going to read from two chapters. The first sticks with the same theme of dukkha and is about the first noble truth. And it's called, The Buddha Tells It Like It Is. And it starts with a poem from Wendell Berry. To go into the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark. Go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. After a long and winding journey of discovery with many ups and downs, the Buddha, an ordinary human being like you and me, sat down under a tree for a long time and then he attained enlightenment, also known as liberation, freedom, or awakening. At first he wasn't sure if he could find the words to share his discovery, but eventually he gave his first teaching the form of the Four Noble Truths, Buddhism, what Buddhists call the Dharma, which simply means teachings, was born. Many people will tell you they know the First Noble Truth, but their usual rendering, life is suffering, is responsible for a lot of misunderstanding about what the Buddha taught. In offering us the First Noble Truth, he was not making a negative pronouncement. If so, it's hard to imagine why he would have called it noble. Life is suffering is misleading for at least two reasons. First, the Buddha used an ancient Indian language similar to Sanskrit called Pali, and the word he used for the first noble truth, dukkha, is difficult to translate. It's too multifaceted and nuanced a term to be captured in the one-word translation, suffering. And second, the fact of dukkha in our lives doesn't mean that life is only suffering. To capture the essence of what the Buddha meant by the presence of dukkha in our lives, 
it's helpful to keep other possible translations of this key word in mind. Unsatisfactoriness, that is, dissatisfaction with the circumstances of our life. I talked about that earlier. Anguish, stress, discomfort, dis-ease, just to name a few. Dukkha is a term worth becoming familiar with, especially when exploring how to be sick. When I first encountered the various translations for dukkha, they resonated powerfully for me. Finally, someone was describing this life in a way that fit a good portion of my experience, both physical and mental. Stress, discomfort, unsatisfactoriness. What a relief to know it wasn't just me. It wasn't just my life. The feeling that the Buddha understood the pain of my life allowed me to start the day-to-day -day work of accepting that dukkha is present for all beings. Even in the darkest early days of the illness, when I didn't understand what was happening to me, was I dying? I always had the first noble truth propping me up, telling me, you know this is the way it is. You were born and so are subject to change, disease, and ultimately death. It happens differently for each person. This is one of the ways it's happening for you. I'll never forget listening to Spirit Rock teacher John Travis giving a talk on a 10-day retreat. He suddenly stopped talking and slowly scanned the room, making eye contact with every single one of us. Then very gently he said, I know you. We all know each other. We've all had our hearts broken by the relentless search to avoid suffering. I would only add that this relentless search just brings more suffering because dukkha is an aspect of existence for all living beings born into this world. The first noble truth, the fact of dukkha, helps me accept being sick because that fact tells me my life is as it should be. Our life is always all right, says Zen teacher Charlotte Joko Beck. There's nothing wrong with it, even if we have horrendous problems. It's just our life. She points out that the second part of the word suffer is from the Latin verb which means to bear, and the first part is from the Latin word that means under. Taking this view, dukkha is not about life bearing down on us from the outside, but instead dukkha is an internal phenomena of bearing life up from underneath. Joko Beck writes, so there are two kinds of suffering. One is when we feel we're being pressed down, as though suffering is coming at us from without, as though we're receiving something that makes us suffer. The other kind of suffering is being under, just bearing it, just being it. Just being life as it is for me has meant ending my professional career years before I expected to being housebound and even bedbound much of the time, feeling continually sick in the body, and not being able to socialize very often. Using Joko Beck's te 
Using Joko Beck's teaching, I was able to use these facts that make up my life as a starting point. I began to bow down to these facts, to accept them, to be them. And from there, I looked around to see what life had to offer, and I found a lot. So there's more to this chapter, but I'm going to stop here because with the time that's left, I want to read from another chapter. And this is a chapter on the Tibetan Buddhist practice, a compassion practice called Tonglen. And the name of the chapter is Tonglen, Spinning Straw into Gold. And it begins with this poem from the Zen monk Ryokan. Oh, that my monk's robe were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. Tonglen is a compassion practice from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Nonetheless, I find that Ryokan's Zen poem captures for me its essence. Of course, they're both inspired by the example of the Buddha. When I first got sick, it didn't take long for me to accumulate a collection of healing CDs from a variety of spiritual traditions. They had one thing in common. I was instructed to breathe in peacefulness and healing thoughts and images and to breathe out my mental and physical suffering. In Tonglen practice, however, the instruction is to do just the opposite. We breathe in the suffering of the world and breathe out whatever kindness, serenity, and compassion we have to give. It's a counterintuitive practice, which is why the Tibetan nun and teacher Pema Chodron says that Tonglen reverses ego's logic. Tonglen practice was brought to Tibet from China excuse me, from Tibet, brought to Tibet from India in the 11th century as part of a group of teachings known as the Seven Points of Mind Training, a collection of 59 slogans for practicing the path of compassion. The practice of Tonglen is described in the slogan this way, train in taking and sending alternately. Put them on the breath. Well, those two sentences don't give us a lot of guidance, but for hundreds of years, this slogan, along with the other 58, has been a favorite subject for commentary by Tibetan masters. And these commentaries flesh out the meaning of each slogan. So Tonglen becomes, breathe in the suffering of others, breathe out kindness, serenity, and compassion. We are, in effect, breathing out the sublime states of mind, which I talk about in another chapter. I had learned Tonglen before getting sick, but I didn't use it very often. Now it's my principal compassion practice. My bond with Tonglen occurred on the first day I returned to work six months after getting sick in Paris. Like everyone else around me, I couldn't believe I wasn't well enough to continue with my profession at least on a part-time basis. So a half hour before my scheduled class, Tony dropped me off at the front door of the law school. It was the second week of January 2002. 
I took the elevator up one floor to my office. I was to teach marital property to second and third year students. As soon as I sat down in my office chair, I knew I was too sick to be there. I began to panic, so I lay down on a couch in the office. Unexpectedly, my thoughts turned to the millions of people who must go to work every day, even though they're sick. I realized that many of these people were in a worse position than I was. If they didn't go to work, they wouldn't be able to pay the rent or buy food for their families. I'd been in the workforce for dozens of years, but had never before thought about people being forced to work while sick. As I was contemplating this, I began to breathe in their suffering, which as a sick person now included my own suffering. Then I breathed out what kindness, serenity, and compassion I had to give. To my surprise, the panic subsided and was replaced with a feeling of deep connection to all these people. Even more astonishing was the realization that sick as I was at that moment, and as preoccupied as I was about the task awaiting me in less than 10 minutes, there was some kindness, serenity, and compassion inside me to send out to others on the out-breath. A few minutes later, I arose from the couch, took a chair with me, and, the first of, and for the first time in 20 years, taught a class while sitting down. For the next two and a half years of part-time teaching, I used Tonglen in my office, followed by adrenaline in the classroom to get me through the work week. Only Tony saw the devastating effect that continuing to work had on me as I went straight from the car to the bed and stayed there until the next class. When I think of those years, Tong Glen and that couch in my office are inseparable in my mind. I don't know how I would have survived without both. After that first day back at work, I began to use Tonglen all the time. I'd use it while waiting for the results of medical tests. It took me out of my small world, out of exclusive focus on my illness, and connected me with all the people caught up in the medical system who were anxiously awaiting the results of tests. It never failed to amaze me that no matter how worried I was, there was always some serenity, some good wishes, some compassion inside me to send out to others in the same situation. Finding our own storehouse of compassion is the wonder of Tonglen practice. Gradually, the fear over my test results would diminish, and I could wait with equanimity to see what the world had in store for me next. I love that Tonglen is a two-for-one compassion practice. The formal instruction is to breathe in the suffering of others and breathe out kindness, serenity, and compassion. But the effect of repeated practice is that we connect with our own suffering, anguish, and stress. So as we breathe in the suffering of others concerning a struggle we share with them, we're breathing in our own suffering over that, our own suffering over that struggle. As we breathe out whatever measure of kindness, serenity, and compassion we have to give, we are offering those sublime states to ourselves too. All beings are included. Yet there came a day when I reached my limit with Tonglen. 
I tried the practice on Thanksgiving Day, two and a half years after I got sick, while lying in my bedroom and listening to the sound of my family chatting and laughing in the front of the house. I tried breathing in the sadness and sorrow of all the people who were in the same house as their family on Thanksgiving, but were too sick to join in the festivities. It was too much. I couldn't hold everyone's suffering without crying, so I cried. But four years later, in a similar circumstance, the practice worked. My second grandchild, Camden Bodhi, was born in September 2007. I hosted a welcoming party for her that, as it turned out, I could not attend. When I set the plan in motion in the spring, I was halfway through a year-long experimental antiviral treatment that appeared to be working. But six months later, on the day of the party, I was too sick to take the hour-long trip to Berkeley. I lay in bed that day thinking about friends and family who'd gathered to celebrate my granddaughter's birth, and I was overcome with sorrow. First, I tried mudita practice, which is the subject of an earlier chapter, cultivating joy in the joy of those who were there. It helped, but I continued to feel sad and disheartened by thoughts about the good time, about, I had thoughts about the good time I was missing and the feelings I had that I'd let others down. So I turned to Tong Glenn. I breathed in the suffering of those who were unable to be with their families on a special day of celebration. As I did this, I was aware I was, bringing, I was breathing in my own sadness and sorrow. But unlike that Thanksgiving day, I was able to hold the suffering, to care for it without feeling overcome. I then breathed out kindness, serenity, and compassion for them and for myself. The connection I felt with all those people was powerful and moving. If you feel hesitant to try Tonglen for fear that breathing in other people's suffering could overwhelm you, you're not alone. Here's the response given by the eco-philosopher and Buddhist scholar Joanna Macy when that very concern was raised at a Spirit Rock workshop. First, she assured the woman asking the question that her capacity to hold others' suffering was greater than she imagined. Then she said, if you really could alleviate all the suffering in the world by breathing it in, wouldn't you? Of course, that's a hypothetical and not a realistic assessment of the effect of practicing Tonglen. Indeed, at times we may cry in response to breathing in the suffering in the world, but it's compassionate crying a perfectly appropriate response. And those moments when we can hold the suffering of the world on the in-breath and breathe out whatever kindness, serenity, and compassion we have to give are like turning straw into gold. Well, thanks so much for listening to me talk and listening to me read.